Thank you, Blair. Well, it seems like we are a long way from O Holy Night, doesn't it? I mean, we're singing this beautiful Christmas hymn, and then we're in 1 Samuel 25. And it, it's not easy to see how they connect. And yet the Word of God does connect. And I just want to remind us as we continue to go through, is this working? As we continue to go through uh, the rise of David through December, to remember that Christmas is all about David's kingdom, that, that what Jesus came to do was to reestablish the kingdom of David. And, and we sometimes forget that. We, we have lost track of some of the historical moorings of Christmas, and we forget that there was a great theological, cata- theological catastrophe in 586 B.C. when the house of David fell. But all of the prophets prophesied that the house of David would rise again. And Christmas is the birth of the son of David to reestablish the Davidic kingdom. And so as we take a look at the rise of David, what we are looking at is the rise of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we're not so far after all. It was a holy night because the house of David that seemingly fell 586 before the birth of Christ was about to rise again. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this extended passage this morning. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at this, your sacred scripture, your word, as you have preserved history for us, and you have spoken your words to be instructive and edifying to us and glorifying to you, I pray that you would help us to read and perceive, to hear and understand. Help me to be an able guide for this, your church, that as we take a look at this man, David, a man after your own heart, that we would understand him, and by understanding him, better grasp the gospel of your salvation through his son and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify yourself this morning among us. Breathe on your church do wonderful things in and through us. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. David, a man after God's own heart. What does it mean? How would you answer that? We've been looking at David now for a couple of months. What does it mean that David was a man after God's own heart? We read about that in only two verses in the Bible. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 4, chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel says to Saul that God has rejected you and he will choose uh, a man after his own heart. And it's repeated in Acts 13, 22 that God did something magnificent through David, a man after God's own heart. What does it mean? I uh, just looked it up on the internet, which just proves to you, be very careful what you read on the internet. The internet is not a good guide. It's not a good disciple maker. You have to be very careful. I I came across all kinds of articles and blog posts by uh, seemingly Christian men and women Yeah, I want to give you one sample. This is just because it's easy for me to capture for you. Uh, And in this, 
this, the title of this blog post was, What Does It Mean That David Was a Man After God's Own Heart? And then in the introductory pa- paragraph, he said, well, it means ten things. It means that David was humble and reverent and respectful and trusting and loving and devoted, that he recognized God's supremacy, that he was faithful, obedient, and because he did have that one little mishap near the end of his life, he was repentant. That, I mean, that's a longer article, but those were the 10 things, the 10 adjectives to help us to understand what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Is that what it means? Is it that David was humble and reverent and respectful and trusting and loving? Was it that he was devoted, meaning, you know what devoted means, just single-hearted purpose toward God and his wife or five wives? He can't be devoted. He had five wives, at least. That he recognized God's supremacy, I'm sure that's true. Faithful aspects, yes. Obedient at times. Repentant, maybe not as much as he could have been. What does it mean for us to be men and women after God's own heart? Do we have to be these things and this and nothing else? Well, I think that the answer is locked away for us in today's Scripture reading our preaching text. And actually, this text, uh, chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, is part of a larger section which goes from chapter 24 to chapter 26. And I would have loved to, to read all three of those chapters for you and spent three hours going through them and explaining them to you. But we just don't have the time. But these three chapters, perhaps more than any other place in the Bible, except maybe David's first words and his last words, I think, pull the curtain back and help us to understand who David was. What was David doing in chapter 25? Well, he, he started a protection racket. That is, he was an ancient mafia boss in Maon and Carmel. That is, I won't hurt you. I won't steal from you. I won't loot you. I won't kill you if you give me what I want. And when Nabal refused to give him what he wanted, he says, you're a dead man. You and your whole house. That's not how godly people act. That, that he is acting like a mafia mob boss. There's nothing good. There's nothing redeeming about that. And Abigail, the wife of Nabal, who David threatened, had to come and remind David of that. The heroine of this chapter is Abigail, not David. Abigail comes and flatters David with all kinds of sweet Flat, uh, flirtations and saying how great David is. He, she even knows a little bit about Goliath and says, you are like a stone in the hollow of a sling that God will sling forth and your kingdom will be made sure forever. Uh, theologically, it's true, but it's just mere flattery. Abigail's trying to protect her husband and her husband's house. And it works. David is not acting well. And yet, we have chapters 24 and 26. See, this is the challenge for a preacher in the narrative sections in the Bible because you cannot understand chapter 25 without chapters 24 and 26. So what are we to do? Well, I'm going to do my best to just summarize all of this for you, but it's up to you, really, to go back and take the the information I give you and to read carefully through these three chapters. So get out your pen and write down some things as we go through it. I'm going to give you enough information to go back 
and take your time going through 1 Samuel 24, 25, and 26 so that you will rightly understand them. What happened in chapter 24? Well, David is on the run from Saul and he's hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul is looking for him. Saul has to go to the bathroom, so he just picks any cave by random chance, goes into the cave, and it happens to be the cave where David and 600 of his men are hiding. So it must have been a big cave. And Saul, who is trying to hunt David and kill him, is now in a very vulnerable position, relieving himself. And David's men say, now's your chance, go and kill him. David says, no, I can't do that. I would never raise my hand to strike the Lord's anointed. And so Saul is safe. He goes out. David comes from the cave after having gone up, and David actually snuck up close enough to cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He comes out and holds up the king's robe and says, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And that's the end of that chapter, although I guess Saul does say, you're right, David. You're more righteous than I. You will be king. Now go forward to chapter 26. What happens? Well, it's very similar. Saul is hunting David and wants to kill him, wants to take his life. And so they come to the wilderness of Ziph. And although uh, Saul sets up his camp on a hill or just at the base of a hill and he's sleeping and David finds that he's there. And so David says to his men, who wants to go down with me into Saul's camp? And Abishai says, I'll go with you. So the two of them go down, and Abishai sees the king sleeping there, and right beside him is his water jug and his spear. And we know this is the very spear that Saul tried to kill David with. And Abishai says to David, now is your chance. Just give me permission. If you won't kill him, give me permission to take his spear. I will run his spear right through him and pin him to the ground. He'll never wake up. David says, no. Do not raise your hand to strike the Lord's anointed. But why don't you go down there and steal his spirit, steal his water jug, and come back up to me. So Abishai goes down, steals the spear, steals the water jug, comes back up to David, and David calls to the king, O king! O commander! Speaking to Abner now, the, the commander of Saul's army, why didn't you protect your king? I could have killed him. Is this not his spear? Is this not his water jug? I could have killed him, but I didn't. And Saul says, oh, David, you're right. You're, you're more righteous than I am. And then they go their separate ways. Chapter 24 and chapter 26 are the exact same story in two different places. It's intentionally redundant. Just want to show you eight parallels. I'm just going to do this very quickly between these two. I hope you already see the parallels. And then we're going to comment on them. Number one, in both 24 and 26, Saul takes 3,000 men to hunt for David and take his life. Number two, although Saul is seeking David, it is Saul who becomes vulnerable to attack and death by David. In chapter 24, Saul is squatting to relieve himself. In chapter 26, Saul is laid straight out sleeping. Both very vulnerable positions. You might argue the two most vulnerable positions that a human being could be in. Not much you can do when you're in either position. Number three, 
In both chapters, David's men want David to kill Saul. Number four, David refuses to strike the Lord's anointed. And he uses that word. He doesn't say, no, we will not strike the king. He does not say, no, we will not kill Saul. No, we will not kill my enemy. He says, we will not raise our hand to strike the Lord's anointed. Number five, David then rebukes his men for wanting to strike the Lord's anointed. Number six, David protests that he is innocent of this treason that he is accused of. He, he protests that he is not deserving of death. Number six. Oh, sorry, that was number six. Uh, number seven, David concedes that David is innocent, or Saul concedes that David is innocent and that David shall be king. And then number eight, Saul and David part ways. Both men still alive. So as I said, these are redundant chapters. The chapter 26 is the exact same thing as chapter 24. So other than the fact, and this is what we often conclude as, as Christians who have a high view of the Word of God, and it's not wrong, but it's just limited, we say, why are both of these chapters in the Bible? They're both in the Bible because the, this is what happened. That's true. But whoever put this together, inspired by the Holy Spirit, need not have included both. He did not include everything in David's life. So there's a very intentional decision by the author of this sacred text. We want a chapter that says this, and then we want to have another chapter, and then after that chapter we want to have a third chapter that is a lot like the first. So what are we going to do with these outer chapters, 24 and 26? Well, this is what we normally do. We normally conclude at least these three related things. That David is in the right and Saul is in the wrong. These are chapters that we go to all of the time to say, look at David. Look at how good he is. Look at how righteous he is. Look at how he wouldn't even kill his enemy. This is, this is uh, him encapsulating what Jesus would later teach. Love your enemies. Bless them. Don't persecute them. Don't wish evil on them, but love your enemies as yourself. That's what we normally do. This is our Old Testament proof text for that moral teaching. Secondly, we often say that David is not guilty of treason and that Saul is irrationally hunting him. Now, unfortunately, though, two weeks ago I preached and I, I showed you that David did collude with Ahimelech and the priests at Nob in treason to overthrow the crown. David wants to be king. He wants Saul out of the way. He's guilty of treason. But we normally go to these chapters and say, well, he can't be because if he was guilty of treason, he would have killed Saul right then and there. And thirdly, and again, I said these are all uh, related, we point to this as David's righteousness. This is what it means to be a man after God's own heart. This is what it means Enemy, love. Saul, on the other hand, he is a sinner through and through. A madman who is hunting an innocent, poor, little David. Now, you might not be surprised if you've been here that I'm going to challenge this interpretation. Uh, and I'm going to do it in five ways. 
And this is, I'm not even going to include chapter 21 and 22, where we see that David is definitely conspiring treason against Saul. Let's just leave that to the side. Just from these chapters, I'm going to try and debunk this. Number one, might David have another reason for not wanting to kill Saul? Even if David wants Saul to die and to get off the throne so that David can rise and sit on the throne, might David have a good political reason for not wanting to get to the throne this way? You see, David's refusal to strike the Lord's anointed has nothing to do with Saul and everything to do with David. You see, David knows how he treats Saul, how he treats the Lord's anointed is going to be precedent-setting for how the king is to be treated. See, David knows something about himself. Saul is not the only one that is the Lord's anointed. There's two men in this narrative at this point who have been anointed by the Lord, by the same prophet even. One is Saul, but the second is who? David. So when David says to his men, under no circumstances, no matter how upset we are with the current administration, never, ever, ever raise your hand to strike the Lord's anointed. What is he saying? What is he doing? He's setting a precedent. You never kill the man that God has anointed to be king. It's discipleship. Translation, again, David, if you want to understand David, David is never looking for the immediate gratification. He's always playing the long game. To his credit, he trusts that somehow, sometime, God will put him on the throne. At that point, he needs to have set the precedent that you never kill the king. That's, That's how other empires rise and fall. And there's a lot of kings and Caesars and empires and emperors and so on and so forth who have very short reigns because someone wants to be king. And David says, when I become king, you never, ever raise your hand to strike the Lord's anointed. Not Saul, not me, never. Secondly, David may not kill Saul, but David does the second best thing. Uh, At least, it's actually the best thing from a political point of view, but as far as him wanting to become king and sooner the better, this is the second best thing he could do. Uh, Short of Saul dying, this is the best thing that he could do. David does strike Saul, just not to death. And he does it twice. In chapter 24, how does he strike the king? King is squatting, relieving himself. David, very quietly, sneaks up, gets behind the king, grabs the king's robe, and cuts the corner off his robe. What does he do in chapter 26? Sends his his, uh, messenger, Abishai, down. Abishai sneaks down. The king is sleeping. Abishai steals the spear, steals the water jug, and comes up. These are very calculated maneuvers by David. Why? Because these three images are potent with symbolism. You see, the hem of Saul's robe is the very symbol of his royal power. Saul's spear is the very symbol of Saul's royal, uh, sorry, 
The hem of Saul's robe is the symbol of Saul's royal position. That's important. I have to clarify that. The robe is a symbol of Saul's royal position. The spear is a symbol of Saul's royal power. And the water jug is the symbol of Saul's royal life. The robe. What happened in chapter uh, 15? Samuel comes to Saul and says, the Lord has rejected you as king and he is tearing the kingdom from you. And what does Saul do? Forgive me, forgive me. And he reaches out for Samuel's robe and it rips. And he's standing there with just a piece of Samuel's robe in his hands. And Samuel looks at him and he says, just as you have ripped my robe, so the Lord has ripped your kingdom from you. Now, it's likely that that story began to circulate. So everyone knows the story of Saul's rejection and the robe that he held in his hand. Now David has the robe in his hand. The rejection of Saul and the ascension of David. The the spear, as I said, is the very thing that Saul tried to kill David with. This was a symbol of his military power, and Israel wanted a king who would lead them in and out of battle, and Saul led the people in and out of battle with that spear. Now David has it. I don't know if you know what the wilderness of Ziph looks like, but it's dry, and you're likely to get thirsty, and without water, you're going to die. David says, I didn't take your life, but I have the source of your life right here. Your water. You don't drink this, you're a dead man. Number three, David turns these symbols, the hem, the spear, and the water jug, into brilliant political propaganda. When David comes out of the cave, or when David calls from the top of the hill in 24 and 26, it's not just him and Saul that are talking. Who else is there? David's men are there, and Saul's men are there. This is brilliant propaganda. I'm innocent. I could have killed you. But I have your hem or I have your spear and your water jug. This is proof of my innocence. And everybody hears it. And everybody says, yeah. Why are we trying to kill this guy? And all of Saul's men begin to wonder, have I backed the right horse? Have I put my life behind the right king? Maybe David is right and Saul is wrong. You know what's ironic is the very thing that happens to us as Bible readers happened to David's men and Saul's men. And then the most important thing of all, David secures a public admission of guilt from Saul himself. And Saul says, you're right. I was a dead man, but you let me live. You're more righteous than I am. And in chapter 24, he even says, you will be king. That's all he needs. David is as good as secure for the throne. Now all he has to do is wait. And number five, 1 Samuel 25. See, as we've been just pointing out, chapters 24 and 26 are almost identical. And they create an envelope structure around verse, or chapter 25, which means this. You read 24, then you read 25, then you read 26. And this is how the experience goes. 24, it's all brand new. Okay, that's good. 
25, wow, David is acting very different than he was in 24. In 24, he wasn't willing to kill. Uh, he was just very patient. He was righteous. He did the right thing. In 25, he's acting like a mafia boss, and he wants to kill because of a grudge. Then you get to 26. Oh, this is the David I love again. He's the guy who won't kill Saul, even though Saul is his enemy. But, but what you have in that experience is sort of this emotion. David is good. David is bad. David is good. And on the outside chapters, David is good and David is good, they read almost identical, which means what the writer is wanting us to do is you cannot just read the outside chapters. He has very strategically placed chapter 25 right between them. He says, if you, if you want to understand what's going on really, fully, deeply, you have to read 24 and 26 with chapter 25 in mind. What do we mean by that? Well, how do you read 24 and 26 keeping chapter 25 in mind? Well, this is, this is what I mean. Chapter 25 is the David who is real. That is the David inside. That is the David that is often concealed from us. Uh, for just one chapter, the curtain is pulled back and we're able to glimpse an inner look at what is going on inside David. In chapter 24 and 26, you get the David that David presents to the world. It's his public persona. So, so just think about yourself. You have yourself at home with your, your husband or wife and your kids and then you have yourself at church. Sometimes they're very different people, aren't they? Or you have the person that you are by yourself. You know, take your wife and your, or your husband and your kids away and you're alone and it's just you. And you know who you are. But then you get ready, you get dressed, you put your makeup on or shave your head if you're me or you, uh, you know, make your hair look all nice. And then you go out into the world and you're someone not altogether different but it's not the whole you. Right? We, we get this. We have public me and private me. So does David. And in chapter 24 and 26, you get public David. In chapter 25, you get private David. You get the David who is really who he is at his core. Now, this is important because, and I just want to make one point on this, which is going to take me eight subpoints. <laughs> But these eight subpoints, don't get all worried about all the subpoints. It's I'm just making one point. The way that David feels and is prepared to act against Nabal is exactly how David feels and wants to act towards Saul. Remember in chapter 17, we said that Goliath and Saul were twin characters and that the way what David did to Saul. Goliath he symbolically did to Saul. Do you remember that? It's going back a few months. The same thing is happening here. That, that Nabal and Saul are twinned in the narrative so that if you really want to understand the, the relationship between David and Saul, if you really want to understand how is David feeling about Saul, what is, if David just lacked a little more restraint, what would he do to Saul? Well, it's what he is designing to do against Nabal in chapter 25. And what does David say that he wants to do to Nabal in chapter 25? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And I'm going to kill all the men with him. I'm going to kill all of his wives and his women and their children. I'm going to kill him. I hate them. I hate them and I'm going to kill them. I'm sorry that it's so aggressive. 
But that's David in chapter 25. And this is David in chapter 24 and 26. Oh, you don't lift your hand to kill the Lord's anointed? Like, I don't like him, but he's trying to kill me, but he's the Lord's anointed. So we don't kill him. We love our enemies as ourselves. Whoa, David. You have the public David. You have the private David. Now, how am I going to prove this to you? This is where I need eight subpoints. If you read this carefully, the narrator goes to great pains to show you that Nabal and Saul need to be twinned in the narrative. You need to read them together. And I'm going to go through eight ways that Nabal and Saul are parallel characters. And if you can follow me on that journey, at the end you'll say, wow, okay, I can see that Saul, though he's a historical man, and Nabal is a historical man, and they're not the same man, that they're presented in the narrative, in Holy Scripture, in very similar ways, and and they're within a three-chapter structure where you have... uh, outside chapters where David is one way and an inner chapter where David is the exact opposite. And if you can put all those pieces together, then you will conclude, wow, David really does want to kill Saul. And he's not as good as we think he is. So let's go through these eight ways. Number one. In verse two, chapter 25, verse two, we're told that Nabal works in Carmel and lives in Maon. To us, that's just throwaway information. Okay, like, big deal. But, if you're reading 1 Samuel very carefully, you'll notice that those two locations, as well as a third, Jabesh-Gilead, I guess in a fourth, Gibeah. So there's four locations that are really important for the characterization of Saul. And two of them are mentioned here. So, Nabal is from Maon, and he works in Carmel. What's the significance? Well, Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 12, set up a monument for himself to honor himself in Maon. Sorry, in Carmel. Let me do that again. In 1 Samuel 15, 12, Saul set up a monument to honor himself in Carmel. And that is where Nabal works. What you've got to think there is, what does it take to set up a pro-Saul statue in Carmel? It means that the people there must be loyal to Saul. That's the first thing. Second thing, in chapter 23, uh, Saul almost got what he wanted. David had no escape route in Maon. And in fir- chapter 23, Saul is this close to catching David and killing him. Again, what we see there is these two locations are where Saul sets up his monument to himself and almost eliminates David. That's where Nabal works and lives. Number two, Nabal is a, Greek, or a Hebrew word that means fool, or it also means wineskin. And the, the two go together because if you drink a wineskin, you'll become a fool. So, so the word Nabal means fool, and in the narrative, Samuel calls Saul a fool in chapter 13, verse 13, and Saul admits to being a fool in chapter 26, 21. Now, Saul, in the narrative from the time David shows up right to the end, is characterized as a fool. 
And he always trips into David's scheming. As, even though Saul knows what David is trying to do, he can't outwit David. He's always one step behind. He's a fool. So just as Nabal, whose name means fool, so Saul is like a fool. And you'll also see that, that uh, to be a, a wineskin, if you drink a wineskin, you're filled with wine and you become a fool. We also know that, that Saul is filled with an evil spirit, and that is the cause of his foolishness. Number three, Nabal is characterized like a king. We see here a threefold grip on power that Nabal has over Judah. First of all, his pedigree. Nabal is a descendant of Caleb. What do we know about Caleb? Caleb was one of 12 spies who went into the promised land. And one of only two spies, him and Joshua, who came back and says, we can take the land. So Moses and Joshua gave Caleb the, his choice of the land in his tribal allotment. And he chose Hebron. So his pedigree, Nabal is a Calebite. The Calebites are the leading family in the tribe of Judah. If you are looking for a king, you want to look in the tribe of Judah. If you're looking for a family to provide that king in the tribe of Judah, you don't go to Jesse, you go to Nabal. Because Nabal is of the quote-unquote royal family in the tribe of Judah. He descends from Caleb. So he has a royal pedigree. Geopolitics come into play as well. The Calebites, as I said, controlled Hebron. They received this when Joshua gave out the land. What we know, if you read forward in the future, David becomes king over Judah first before he's king over all of the tribes. Where does he set up his capital? Hebron. For seven years, David rules as king over Judah in Hebron. That's the center of Nabal's family heritage. So we're dealing with a powerful, kingly-like man we're also told in chapter 25, verse 2, that the man was very rich. And who are the rich people in ancient times? The kings. So this man has the right family. He hails from the right area. And he has the right amount of wealth to be considered like a king. Not only that, take a look at verse 36. I won't take you to a lot of verses, but there's a handful that I think are worthwhile. Go to chapter 25, verse 36. After Abigail, Abigail speaks with David, she comes to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. That's intentional. You see, uh, what the narrator is trying to do is, in case you missed these first three things that make him kingly, in the very chapter itself, he's acting like a king. He's hosting a feast for himself like a king, and he's getting drunk like a king at this feast. This means, without just, just think about this for a moment politically, without Nabal's support or Nabal's demise, David will have a very difficult time rising to the top of the tribe of Judah. We don't often think about that because we're so programmed to think about David the king. But David comes from Bethlehem, the house of Jesse, a forgotten little family, Ephratites. The 
power is in the Calebites. Nabal is the head of the Calebites. Nabal stands between him and the throne of Judah, just like Saul stands between him and the throne of all Israel. Number four, David calls himself Nabal's son at the end of verse eight. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. This is David's messengers speaking to Nabal. So, so David tries to curry Nabal's favor by calling himself his son. It's just it's good diplomacy to try and get what you want. But what's really important is to see that this is the exact same kind of dynamic at play between Saul and David. That Saul has this father role and David this uh, filial role in the broader narrative. In chapter 24, 11, David refers to Saul as his father. So, so in these three chapters, David is positioning himself as the son of Nabal and the son of Saul. In his discourse, Saul also calls David his son four times in these chapters. In 24.16, in 26.17, 26.21, and 26.25. So you have this father-son relationship between Nabal and David, this father-son relationship between Saul and David. And it's not really a relationship so much as diplomatic language. But it links Nabal and Saul. Number six, this is where it gets a little bit more crude, but important. In verse 37 of chapter 25, Nabal is, oh, sorry, I missed one. Uh, go back. Nabal asks, number five, Nabal asks, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? In verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? And then look, if we continue going on, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. So just that last part, he seems to allude to the fact that David has broken away from his master. And then he asks the question, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? And this reminds us of Saul's question in chapter 17, 55. Abner right after David has thrown the, the, the stone, hit Goliath in the forehead, David has gone over and cut off the head, and as David is going out to do that, Saul says to Abner, his commander, he says, Abner, whose son is this? Both Nabal and Saul ask the same question. But both Nabal and Saul know the answer. Now we went over that, how how obviously Saul know, knew the answer to that question in previous weeks, but just look at the way Nabal asked the question. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? It's interesting. His second question answers his first one. Who is David? The answer to that is, oh, David is the son of Jesse. But he asks two questions. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? As if to say, why do I care about this this man? And then the answer is, he's just another man breaking away from his master. But the question itself, again, twins Saul and Nabal. Now, let's get to the one that I had jumped forward to, number six. This is like I said, it gets a little more crude, but it's important. Nabal is portrayed as relieving himself of the previous night's debauchery. Take a look at verse 37. 
in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal. Now, if that's what your Bible says, it's been cleaned up for you a little bit. After the wine had gone out of Nabal, it might make you think, oh, he has sobered up. It's not what the Hebrew says. And we know this because the verb, the, the, the going out, is in the infinitive construct, which has no temporal reference. It means you can't say that it's something that's happened or not happening. It, it's, it's a, it's a, you put a verb into that tense when you want to temporally join it with the other verb in the, in the clause. All that to say is that because it's an infinitive construct, this is how I would interpret the Hebrew. In the morning, while the wine was going out of Nabal, his wife came and told him these things. And so what were the things that Abigail came and told him while the wine was going out from Nabal? So what we want to picture there, maybe, we have a very hungover Nabal. And somehow, the wine is coming out of him. I'll leave that up to you. And it's at that moment that Abigail says, I want to come over and tell you something that happened to me yesterday. She could have picked any other time, but she picked that time. Because that was a very vulnerable time for Nabal. And she goes over and says, you know that David that you refused? He had 400 men ready to come and kill you while you were feasting and getting drunk at your kingly table. You see, at that very moment, he's vulnerable, and Abigail tells him the very thing that could have been his death but wasn't. It's exactly the same thing that happened to Saul. As he's relieving himself, he could have been killed but wasn't, and David took the hem of his robe. Number seven Both Nabal and Saul die in accordance with divine providence, opening up for room for David to rise first in Judah and then in Israel. We're told in verse 38 that Nabal had a heart attack because the Lord desired to kill him. Without Nabal's death, David doesn't become the king of Judah, at least not easily. So God removes that obstacle from David. And we also know that without Saul's death, David does not become the king over all Israel. So in chapter 31, we're going to find out that Saul goes out to do battle against the Philistines, and he is defeated, and he's, he's injured, and he's going to be killed, but he falls on his own sword. But this is in keeping with the word of God through Samuel in chapter 28. So God removes both Saul and Nabal killing them so that David can rise first to the throne of Judah and then to the throne of all Israel. And number eight, and this will just take a couple of minutes because it's a bit controversial, David marries Nabal's wife, Abigail. Take a look at verse 42. Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Now that's problematic because David already has a wife, Michal. Okay, it's fine. So we don't like that to begin with. But why does David marry Abigail? It's because he wants a claim uh, for the throne of Judah. And Abigail was married to the most powerful man in Judah, a Calebite, Nabal, who was feasting like a king and acting like a king. So this is a political marriage on David's side. 
He wants to be the king, so he takes the wife of the, of the king, at least the one who was sitting in the most powerful position. That's what's going on there. Now we're told right after that in verse 43 that David had a third wife. 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. So again, we don't like the polygamy, but that's not the main point here. Who's Ahinoam of Jezreel? There's only one other Ahinoam in the Bible. In order to know who she is, just flip back to chapter 14, verse 50. First Samuel 14, verse 50. And the name of Saul's wife was, what? Ahinoam. The daughter of Ahimaaz. So David has a wife named Ahinoam. And Saul has a wife named Ahinoam. That can't be the same woman, can it? David wouldn't do that. David would not take the wife of the sitting king. He would not take the queen of Israel and make her his wife while the king was still alive, would he? Not David. Not the David of chapter 24 and 26. We don't raise our hand to strike the Lord's anointed, but we do take his wife. (laughs) Now it is possible that this is just like Jennifer in the 1980s. Everybody was named Jennifer. Uh, Or Florence in the 1920s or Mary in the first century. But there's only two Ahinoams in the Bible. One married to Saul, one married to David. Could it have been the same woman? Well, you know, it's a little bit complicated by the fact that I just spent seven points showing you how uh, Nabal and Saul need to be understood together. We get to the end, and David takes Nabal's wife and then takes a woman by the same name as Saul's wife. But still, David wouldn't do that. Not, Not our little David. Poor little David, he wouldn't do that. Well, go to, uh, go to chapter 25, 44. Why would David do that? If he did do it. Remember, why did he want to marry Abigail? He needed to have a woman that was connected to the most powerful family in Judah if he's going to become the, the king of Judah and if the king of Judah, the king of all Israel. So he takes the most powerful woman in Judah, Abigail. Okay, now he already has his royal princess, Michal. So he doesn't need the queen. Right? Except for verse 44. Oh, Saul had given Michal his daughter, David's wife, to Pelti, the son of Laish, who was in Galim. He doesn't have a royal wife anymore. Fine, you take my wife, your daughter, and give her, give her to someone else, I'll take your wife. I need a Saul-eyed queen or princess if I'm going to become the king of all Israel. No, not David, not David. Well, one more verse. Go to chapter 20, verse 30. And this suggests that chapter 25 happened before chapter 20 which again just reinforces that chapter 25 is put between chapter 24 and 26, not because it fits there chronologically, but because it fits there thematically. That it fits between chapter 24 and 26, thematically, not chronologically. So what happened in 25 happened sometime before chapter 20. Take a look at verse 30. 
Saul is talking to Jonathan. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, why is he mad before we read this? Why is he mad with Jonathan? Because Jonathan made a covenant with David. That Jonathan says, I don't need to be king after my father. David, you can be king. He, he undermined his own kingdom and the kingdom of his father, so his father's angry. And look at what Saul says to him. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Hmm? Ahinoam? Do I not know that you've chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? What? What is Saul saying? You're just like your mother. You shame yourself, son. You shame yourself aligning yourself with David. You're just like your mother. She's aligned herself with him. Whether she had a choice in the matter, I don't know. But you are just like your mother. You and your mother are in league with David against me. The shame of your mother's nakedness means that David stole Ahinoam, had sexual relations with her, took her to be his wife. So now poor Saul. Before we beat up on Saul, his wife has been taken by David. His son has made a covenant with David. And he was forced to give his daughter to David. The whole family has switched sides from Saul to David. Now how would that make you feel? Oh, David. So Nabal and Saul are twinned. Chapter 24, 25, and 26 are written in such a way that in 24 and 26 we see the David that David portrays publicly. In 25 we see the David who is. Now, for generations, Christians have been blind to the inner David, the true David, and have bought into his political propaganda. Not us. We've revealed who he is. Which takes us back to the original question. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Does it mean you can commit treason and murder and adultery? Can you steal people's wives and be polygamous? Can you be a a, a mafia boss? Can you pretend to be one way when you're actually another way? After everything we've gone through, like... Listen to these ten ways that reasons that are ten things that it means to be a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart, according to the author of this article, because he was humble, reverent, respectful, trusting, loving, devoted, recognized God's supremacy. He was faithful, obedient, and yeah, near his the end of his life he made a mistake, but he was repentant. Or he was scheming, adulterous murderous, treasonous. If Nabal equals Saul thematically, then chapter 25 pulls back the curtain and we discover the true David under the public persona. We've further ruined David's pristine portrait here this morning. And what I hope is beginning to emerge is that what we cannot conclude is that to be a man after God's own heart means these ten things. It can't mean that. 
Because, see, this is a works-based gospel. If that's what it means to be a man after God's own heart, it means you have to be humble. You have to be reverent. You have to be obedient. You have to be devoted. You have to do this. You have to do that. It's all about you. It's all about David. It's about God looking down from heaven when everybody else is a sinful mess and he's looking for just somebody to love. Oh, there's a shepherd boy who looks pretty good. I like him because he likes me and because he is a, a harp-playing, psalm-writing, Jesus-loving kind of man. That's not what it means. You see, we have, through bad interpretation, come up with an English idiom that actually makes it hard for us to understand the Bible. If I say to you, you're a man after my own heart, what I mean is I see something in you that reminds me of me and I like it. It's not what it means. To be a man after God's own heart has nothing to do with David's heart and everything to do with God's heart. Show me in that line anything about God, David's heart. He was a man after God's own heart. What that means is God looked at him and he says, you're a mess. You are a vile, wicked, awful sinner. But I choose you. You're after my heart. I'm going to put my heart on you no matter what. No matter what. No matter what you do, David, you're a man after my heart. I give you my righteousness. I love you unconditionally. I will make your name great no matter what. And it, nothing you can do can change that. And that's really important for us because if we are going to be men and women after God's own heart, it cannot depend on us. It has to depend on God. It has to depend on His choosing of us. It has to depend on His unconditional love. It has to depend on Him saying there's nothing you can do to throw this off that's really important because it means on those really hard days uh, just picture yourself as a boat and 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 the, the ocean is your life and on those really rough days when your sin is trying to capsize your boat when you have done things unimaginable when you have betrayed God and the ones that you love can you still be a man or a woman after God's own heart if we rightly understand the Scriptures, yes. Because the anchor will hold in heaven. There is a rope between us and God and the anchor is Christ. And the anchor will hold even on our worst day. So what has been your worst day? What will be your worst day? When you meet Jesus face to face, if he asks you what was your worst day and if you answer correctly and you reveal to him the depth of your sin, the worst of your sin, if you're a man or a woman after God's own heart, Jesus will just take his blood and cover you. And he'll say, you're my child. I love you. You're righteous. Come. Come. Let us not divide the Word of God into Old Testament works-based gospel, New Testament grace-based gospel.
It's all grace. All grace. Heavenly Father, thank you. David was a vile sinner, and so are we. But you saved him and you saved us. You loved him and you love us because his son died and bled and rose again for us. Oh God, may the gospel sink deep, deep, deep into our minds and into our hearts that we would never be led astray by the false works-based gospel that so easily corrupts and tickles our ears. Oh Jesus, thank you for coming 2,000 years ago as a baby to grow and to die so that though we die we might rise with you and live men and women after God's own heart in your name we pray Amen